Welcome to the Renaissance Church Podcast. Our mission is to glorify God and to make disciples by bringing the gospel into all of life in all the earth. This is Chris Kipp, lead pastor of Renaissance Church here in Richmond, Texas. And if you've not joined us in a worship gathering or at a house church yet, we would love to have you join us. You can find out more information at rin-church.org. And I pray that you are encouraged and edified by the proclamation of God's word today. This morning, I have a message just called Where You Belong. And then the, the second part is that is unlocking the power of your true identity. And there's going to be um, a lot of information. There's just a lot of things that we're going to say today. And my expectation for you is not to make sure that you can leave here and remember everything that's said. But my, my thought is that there's something that's said that's going to mean a great deal to you. And when you get that, just grab that. And I think that's what is going to be the most important thing for you to walk away from today with. Does that make sense? So don't feel the pressure to comprehend. We're going to cover a lot of things. And, and this is just very much an overview. And so what I hope happens is that we just see some things that cause us to want to go deeper into some other things and leave just with a better sense of our own gospel identity, who we are in Christ. A few years ago, in the height of the pandemic, our friend Terry Kokenauer got us hooked on this show called Alone. Anybody else watch Alone? It was like the peak of lockdown when everybody was feeling very alone, and so we were able to just kind of um, process through our own emotions by watching these 10 people just get dropped randomly in the middle of nowhere in a strategic location where they would have no contact with any other human at all. And they were allowed to take 10 things with them in their pack, and they, and they are survivalists, that their goal is simply to outlast everybody else that was dropped off in the middle of nowhere, usually in some sort of nearly Arctic situation. So it starts off kind of moderate, and then they get into the dead of winter where there's no wildlife, and everything is difficult. And the 10 things they brought, they find out were not the 10 things they should have brought. And they give everybody a sat phone, because at any given time, you can tap out for any given reason. And then every once in a while, they use that sat phone to, to call in and say, hey, we're sending a medical team because these people might lose 30, 40, 50, some of them like 80 pounds, and they get to the point of starvation sometimes. But it, you can tap out for any reason, and so they make a decision to leave this, this situation, and, and I forgot what the prize money is, but I think it's like $250,000, I mean, something significant, some life-changing amount of money for outlasting everybody else. And um, there's a couple of times where the medical teams would come and be like, you're done because you're about, you know, like you're hours away from dying and we're getting you out of here right now. But other times they would leave because of an injury, like some freak accident. They tripped. One guy just jacked up his ankle and had to leave. And it was like he was well suited for the environment, but an injury kept him from being who he could have been in that situation. But one of the most noticeable things about the show when you watch it is that these people, like any survivalists in the room, anybody? think like drop me off in the woods and the longest like the longest guy Herman thinking about it right so maybe Chelsea's like mm. she has thoughts um, the, one of the guys who won was out there 100 days 100 days without seeing another human scavenging for his own there's no shelter they have to build their own shelter they have to build their own individual colony wherever they are and like now we just will randomly say things in our house like hey bear 
hey bear, because you watch them like having to go toe to toe with grizzlies. Like it's pretty entertaining. I highly recommend it. But this is the thing that was the most interesting to me. It didn't matter how well suited somebody was for survival in the wilderness. Overwhelmingly, the reason that people tapped out was because of a lost sense of community. The people who was their people, they were missing so badly that they couldn't go another day in the wild, not because they couldn't do it physically, not because they didn't have more days in them. And then some days there was this one guy that had built this incredible place and he could, it looked like he could have lived there forever and been fine. And he was just like, I got nothing left to prove. I'm out. And he didn't win. He had already given up like two months and he just went home. And so I think, but this idea of being alone is something that I just noticed. It's like, because we're built for community. You're built to belong somewhere with a tribe of people to have an experience that's the opposite of loneliness. But in our society today, we've never been more connected and disconnected at the same time. And so this surface, surface level of relationships and connections where we feel like we see everything from everybody also leaves us feeling um, a lack when it comes to authentic relationship because our relationships aren't swimming in the deep end of the pool, right? Like we're just kind of hanging out in the kiddie pool and pretending like it's meeting all of our needs. But people are feeling very lonely today and your identity will never be found in what you do. So these survivalists who like that was what they prided themselves on. They wear animal skins every day. They go and practice in the backyard like they're, they're fashioning their own weapons and, and you know, finding, pillaging their own mushrooms and finding their own sources of food. But at the end of the day, it wasn't about that thing that they did that made them who they are. It was the place where they belonged that made them who you, you are. And so the things that you do, the things that you have done will never be a fulfilling source of your identity. You are not what you do. You are who you are, and the you who you are happens to do some things, but that's like a further step. And so I want us to just kind of dive a little bit deeper in this who you are. Brene Brown is a researcher and best-selling author and professor at the University of Houston here in town, and her focus is on studying vulnerability and shame. And she says her first job is I'm a researcher who's also an author and professor and now speaker. Her, her TED Talk is like, I think, one of the top five of all time. And though she is a woman of faith, her work and research are not gospel-centered. Um, they're not in conflict with the gospel, but her goal was not to teach the Bible and loneliness. Her goal is research, which I think is incredibly valuable. So she's just researching the everyday world and everyday people and finding what they're longing for. And this tells us what people are looking for. And that's important because this is where God has placed us in the midst of people who are looking for some things. So if we understand a little bit better what it is that people are looking and longing for, it allows us to better know how to show up and be a presence of love and encouragement and support and the gospel for the people that we run into. And so as I stumbled into more and more of her work, um, I just kind of caused me to go deeper and deeper into some gospel um, learning that I wanted to dive into because I believe the good news of Jesus is the ultimate catalyst for acceptance and belonging. I think apart from that, we're always going to be looking for something. So hobbies and activities and even addictions are this pursuit of looking for something to make us feel accepted and a place to belong. And she says it like this in, I'm going to quote a couple things from her book called Braving the Wilderness. 
And it says this, belonging is the innate desire to be a part of something larger than us. She's defining these terms based on the research that she's conducted, right? This isn't church people um, that gave this data. Because the yearning is so primal, we often try to acquire it by fitting in and by seeking approval, which are not only hollow substitutes for belonging, but often barriers to it. That is so significant. Fitting in is the enemy of belonging. Fitting in is the enemy of belonging. Dressing like other people dress, listening to what other people listen to, reading what other people read, trying to be like somebody else and then showing up in that place so that they'll love you and accept you and make you feel like you belong, it will never happen as long as your goal is to fit in for acceptance. True belonging only happens when we present our authentic, imperfect selves to the world. Our sense of belonging can never be greater than our level of self acceptance. We have to be true to who we are. We can't pretend that we're somebody that we're not and ever feel genuinely accepted or like we have a place to belong. She goes on and says this, they want to be a part of something to experience real connection with others, but not at the cost of their authenticity, freedom, or power. Their concern in the right now is that the only thing that binds us together is shared fear and disdain. People are congregating. People are finding acceptance in groups of people who hate the same things that you hate. I got on this crazy rabbit trail this week and it was talking about artificial intelligence and chat GBT and it's like all this fascinating stuff. But here's what's happened is that social media algorithms have made us actually more racist. Because what does it populate in your feed? The things that look like you, believe what you believe, celebrate what you would naturally celebrate. There's nothing in there that says, I should love somebody different than me. I should have friends that look different than me. I should have friends from a different world than me. I should have friends from a different neighborhood than me because artificial intelligence is showing you that all you need is what's already just like you. It's caused more division. It's just a reality of our world. And so the concern is that the only thing that people have in common is what this shared fear and disdain, not common humanity or shared trust, respect, or love. Just common Humanity. Chris says this all the time. It's like, we just want to help people be people again. We just want to see people giving people permission to be the people that walked in the door and not the pressure to be something that you're not. And the world puts that pressure there. People are looking for something deeper, longer, a common humanity. And I want to help make sure we're getting the full belonging flowing out of our common and unique identity, but I want us to make sure that that's rooted in the fullness of Christ and the provision of our loving God. And so I think Brene Brown does some incredible research, and I think that she's got some incredible solutions for how to belong, but they fall short of what the gospel would also say. So we need to be careful when we read things like that and not celebrate that as a solution. It helps us point to what a greater solution is, and it's really helpful, but we need to look to the word of God in order to find true belonging, true acceptance, and that common humanity that she was saying that people long for. So I want us to start 
Um, and we're going to read from Acts chapter 17, 26 through 29 is just kind of a launching pad. So normally I'm a lot more comfortable kind of walking through a passage of scripture and pointing out the things and storytelling through that. It's going to be a little bit different today, but this is the kind of the framework for what we're going to talk about the next, the rest of the time. So this is Paul in Greece talking to a group of non-Christian people. Like he's in a public place proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. To, he was invited to share. And so he's, he's contending for the faith in the midst of a people who are polytheist and don't have the same belief system that he has. So he's, he's talking about Jesus. He says, from one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so they might see God. And perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him, we live and move and have our being. And I would also add belonging. As even some of your own poets, and so some of you are like, why are you reading Brene Brown? Like, she's not like, it's not a Christian book. Paul was quoting non-Christian people in the Bible, all right? So I'm taking a little bit of liberty there. But Paul said, this is what your poets are saying, describing their longing for belonging and acceptance. He said, and it said, I have said, for we also are his offspring since then. We are God's offspring. We shouldn't think that divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art or imagination. And so Paul's just very simply pointing out, like, you guys are looking to things. You're looking to created things as they are the creator, you're giving credit to things that make you feel good and things that you prefer and things that you enjoy as the source of your happiness, the source of your salvation, the source of your acceptance and belonging. And Paul's just saying, those will never get it done. It's always gonna leave you longing for more. Um, so he's talking about, we'll never be where we belong as long as we're looking to everything around us to provide that meaning and acceptance. A shared experience is something we long for, but common enemies don't mean that we belong together. We only find what we're looking for when we first look up to the creator and not the created. So on a daily basis, our priority should be getting outside of all of the things that we can touch with our hands and sync up with the God who is above it all because in him, we live and move and have our being. But we give so much time to everything else and trying to have it make us feel a certain way, accepted like we belong and faithful. But who we are is never about what we do. Who we are has to do with how we see God, how we see ourselves, and then what gets in the way of that. So I wanna start first with, before we can dig in to who we are, we have to start with who God is, and God is not conformed to our expectation of him. We need to conform to who he tells us he is through his attributes that are described all the way out, all the way through the scriptures. And one of the best ways to do that is by seeing him through the names that he is called in the Old Testament, and then furthermore, how he is described. So, um, and this is like each one of these things should be a whole sermon to do it any justice. And I'm just going to kind of mention some things. All right. So this is not meant to be exhaustive. We're just given a little glimpse into who God is. Right. So I can't tell you in like 
five to seven minutes, who God is. It's gonna take a little bit longer than that. Let's have lunch, let's talk more, it'll be great. But this is just short, okay? So first of all, we see way back in Genesis that God is El Shaddai. And when it says that God is El Shaddai, it's talking about God being almighty. This actually makes some people a little bit uncomfortable because the word Shaddai, in most places, it has to do with maternal nurture. So it's talking about God as the one who nurtures us and raises us like a mother. Male and female are both made in the image of God. We'll come back to that. God's not shy about saying that he encompasses gender roles all in himself, both mother and father. We're way more used to talking to God as father, good, good father, but he also carries the significance of a mother's love. And the preface El, it just always means God. El is God. And so El something is a description of God. So in this place, El Shaddai is, this is God Almighty, the nurturing God, providing for all of our needs. He is complete. It is part of his character. A little bit later, what's the most common description of God in the Old Testament is the word Yahweh. And when you see the word Lord in the Old Testament in all caps, that's a translation of this Hebrew word Yahweh, which is listed almost, used almost 7,000 times in the Old Testament. That is an awful lot of use of the same word. And it has the coolest theological description anywhere. It's the tetragrammaton, right? Like it just sounds fun to say. It's such an exhaustive a unique and magnificent expression. They came up with a word to describe the expression that includes the depths of who God is. And God was considered so holy that eventually they took the vowels out of this word Yahweh because they believed that mortal man shouldn't even speak this name Yahweh because it was just too holy. It's so set apart, it's so pure that we shouldn't even be allowed to say this depth of holiness and reverence on our lips. And so it's just Y-H-W-H. And so try to pronounce that um, with no vowels. Like, whoosh, whoosh, yeah, you can't do it. But then what they say is that that sound, that whoosh, it just sounds like breath, doesn't it? It just sounds like the breath of God, which is what formed creation, which is what formed you. So God is El Shaddai. God is Yahweh. The name Jehovah also derives from this name, and it teaches that God is personal, present, and faithful. This is God's covenant name. It's, he's the one who, who keeps his promises. He's the warrior king with sovereign power. He is Jehovah God, breathing life into all of creation and sustaining it with that breath. It calls us up to this thing that God is everything, above everything, beyond everything, and sustaining everything. Yahweh just draws us deep into one, in, in who God is. You know, it's just, I don't know if you can have favorites when you're talking about like who God is, but this is my favorite. And because God is, I am. In Exodus chapter three, this is, this is like mind blowing, but when he's telling Moses to go and, and do all these things and Moses like, ah, who am I? He's like, well, who should I even say sent me to do these things? And God tells him, tell him I am who I am. What? That doesn't make any sense, God. He's like, exactly. Go tell them I am who I am. And it's, it means this. It's always present tense. God is always right now. What it means is that there was no beginning. It's not 
There was his start, and there's not, and here will be his end. It's, he is. And that's mind-blowing. Some of you are like, I got it. It's not that complicated. Just wait. It's going to come back to haunt you in the middle of the night. What do you mean he is? He is. What else is he? He is. What's he going to be tomorrow? He is. What is he right now? He is. What was he yesterday? He is. He is these things. He will never end. He's absolute. He can't not be. There's no reality before him. There's no reality outside him. He is utterly independent. He depends on nothing to bring him into being or support him or counsel him. He never phones a friend and says, like, what should I do? He is. He is all that matters. The entire universe is secondary to he is. He alone is primary. He alone sustains the world. He alone is the absolute standard of truth and goodness and beauty. And all that he does is right and good and always just he is. He is more worthy of our interest and attention and devotion and admiration and enjoyment than all of the other things that we spend so much more time involved in. They are not is. They are was or will be. They will start. They will finish. He is. I am. That's God. That's the God's why he deserves our worship. Because he is. What is he? He is. It's the answer to every question. He is. Goes on, we learn from John chapter four that God is the spirit. God is not physical. He's not material. He's invisible. You can't see him. I don't really have more to say about it than that, but that's true. He's mysterious. What is that? I don't know. That's just what he is. He's spirit. God is personal. And it comes, and from him comes personhood. From him comes identity. Because he says, hey, my thoughts are not your thoughts. You have thoughts. I have thoughts. My thoughts are is. Your thoughts are not is. But I want you to know me. Jeremiah 29, I know the plans I have for you. He's inviting us in. Isaiah 1 says, come, hey, let us reason together. Let's engage relationally. Let's be together. God is, is personal. God's compassion grows warm and tender. It says that he rejoices over you with gladness. You. The way you walk into the door, Zephaniah 3 says he, he dances because he loves you so much. And he rejoices over you with singing. Why do we sing back to God? Because he's singing over us out of his love and care for us. He's personal. God is the Trinity. He's Father, Spirit, Son. It's not three different entities. It's one entity. People have been trying for thousands of years to describe what that means, and we still can't do it. Everything we have falls short of describing the beauty of God interacting with himself in three forms of Father, Spirit, Son. Our brains can't figure it out. It's not simple. It's complex. God is holy and righteous. And he says, be holy because I am holy. God became a man in John 1. The word became flesh and moved here to be with us. His name is Jesus, the fullness of God in human form. Why did he need to send his son in human form? Because God is spirit. And he made Jesus so that we could see him in a way that we could understand. Why? Because he's personal. He's relational. He's compassionate and kind, and he's inviting us to know him and walk with him. God is just, though. God can't handle sin, will not handle it. 
has to respond to it in appropriate fashion, which is judgment and wrath. Romans tells us a lot more detail about that. He is just. He can't let sin go unknown, unnoticed or unpunished. But God is a rescuing God. So he didn't want to leave us subject to that judgment and wrath. John 3, 16, he says, one and only son, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Because all that wrath he absorbed in himself when he had Jesus take the wrath. Because that's part of himself. It's not separate from who he is. He's merciful, he's compassionate, and he is kind. Now, these attributes should not be new to any of us who call ourselves a Christian. They should be reminders of what drew us to him in the first place. And as we see who he is, the more we see what he is worth, that we should worship him, believe in him, follow him, live for him, and trust him. We should dive deep into all that God is. He is all of these things and so much more. Like Revelation, if we were to write down all of the stories of even just Jesus's life and ministry, the books of the world could not contain it. He is. He's always been. He always will be. We need to understand those things about God because if we don't see those things in other things, who we are, it's just gonna be a striving. It's gonna be an attempt for fitting in. It's gonna be a looking for a place to belong. So that's who, who God is. And I wanna talk, shift gears for just a minute and say, let's talk about who you are. What do you believe about who you are? In my coaching and counseling, it always comes back to this. What do you believe about yourself? What do you believe about purpose? What do you believe about destiny? It's very hard questions to answer. So I wanna give you a bit of a cheat sheet your purpose and your destiny, your identity, it's not about anything that you do. Your identity is not the stats on your driver's license, right? That's weak identification. And a lot of people, like, there's fake ID, so you can even fake that. Your identity is not your job, even though that may be an overflow of who you are, but you are not defined by what you do because then the second you stop doing that thing, then your identity is gone. You can't identify primarily as a husband or a wife because that is limited to our time on earth. You can't identify as a father or a mother primarily because that's a season. And then that season changes. And if your identity and worth is in the parent of raising a child, then when it changes, you don't know who you are. If your worth and your identity is wrapped up in your job, well, what if you get fired? Then all of a sudden, you don't know who you are. And it causes a crisis of faith and it causes a crisis of many different things when you don't know who you are. So I want us to have some, some baseline information about who we are. So this is not who we are collectively, this is also who you are individually, okay? We okay so far? Okay. If you weren't, would you say anything? Anybody need a break? <laughs> Anybody see that Houston got promoted to like the 12, number 12 on the worst allergies list in the country? It's just real life, guys. It's where God placed us. Nobody chooses to come to Houston. It's just here we are for the glory of God, right? 
God sent some people here, share the good news, just where we're supposed to be, allergies and all. All right, so after we set our eyes and hearts on him, we can see more clearly who we are. We need the backdrop of who he is. And again, we're just scratching the surface on some of our own individual identity. So here is who you are. You are made in the image and likeness of God. That's you. That's not like a collective, the church is made in the, you as an individual are created in the image and likeness of God. What does that mean? The glory of God is in your DNA. You've got it. You were born with it. God put himself in you. The imago Dei, the image of God is in your DNA. You have worth beyond what you can imagine. You have significance. You were made in the reflection of God's own image and glory, which means whether you believe it or not, you matter much more than you think that you matter. You were made by design. In Psalm 139, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You, it says you were knit together. Do we have any knitters in the room? Don't be afraid. Two. All right. Herman? Three? Okay, so sorry. Knit together in, the mo- in your mother's eye. That's a lot of intricate activity. God was not quick or hasty in his design of you. You were knit together with intention and purpose, fearfully and wonderfully made. So the next time we go to war with ourselves, why am I, why am I? You are fearfully and wonderfully made by God on purpose, for purpose, knit together with his own hand. You were made. By design, we need to help remind each other of this. We are made to be known and in relationship. The Lord, after he created everything and it was good, he went a little bit further and he created this luscious garden in Eden specifically for man to work it and oversee it and where God showed up. He created this place where God and man could dwell together in perfect peace and harmony. We said God is personal. God is relational. We are made to interact in that relationship. Part of creation was God designing a place for us to commune with him, to eat with him. He made that place. We were made to be known. We weren't made to pretend. We weren't made to fit in. We were made to be known. We have that longing. It's part of who we are. We were made to be in relationship. You were made to belong with God. You were made to belong so strongly with God that if you have God and nobody else, you have everything that you need. That's the power of that relationship. You were made for God's family. You were made, it says that we're adopted children. It says that you're co-heirs with Christ. So everything that God has set apart for Jesus to inherit as his son, you have privilege to as co-heirs with Christ. Jesus is our brother? Yes. We're in the family of God. And this is hard for us because the only reference we have for family is the family that we have here and now. 
And for some of us, it's like, uh, no, thank you. It's not that kind of family. It's the family that you were designed for. All of our parents are imperfect. All of us are imperfect as parents. We will never be able to provide the perfect environment of relationship that we were created for. It can only come from God. And God's calling us to a higher understanding of family. So let's not let our understanding of family here and now limit our understanding of where God is placing us and inviting us to the family table that he's created with us. And that's why we call each other brothers and sisters in Christ because we're all children of God. And sometimes brothers and sisters, my sister's not in here today, brothers and sisters, sometimes it's messy but you're still brothers and sisters. You still love each other and you still have the same DNA. You're still there for each other. You're still helping each other out. We are the family of God. You were made to reflect God's glory. Galatians 2.20 says, um, it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. He's evolving my identity to be his glorification and not just the best that I can do. You were made to reflect God's glory. You are an image bearer of God. You have his DNA in you. You were put here to reflect the glory of God to a broken world. Next is you were made for good works. You were made to bless the world. You were made to bless the world. Abraham models this for us and God says, I'm gonna bless you so that you can be a blessing. And what God intends for blessing is for you to give it away. We're not blessed to hijack that blessing for ourselves. We're not given gifts of the Spirit to hijack those for ourselves. We're given blessings and giftings and opportunities to bless the world. If he can pass it through you, then he'll give it to you. But it's not for us to hang on to. You were made for good works. You were made to give the blessing away. You were made for resilience. According to Hebrews 6, you were made to endure adversity. You are built for a beating of life and you'll come out the other side. I'm going through the valley of the shadow of death. I'm not stopping there. I will come out on the other side. You are made to be resilient. You are more resilient than you could ever know or understand. No matter how old you are, there's things that you've gone through that if you would have asked yourself on the other side of those things, if you could have gone through those things, that you would have said like, yeah, I'm built for that. No, we're built for more. We're built for resilience. We're built for perseverance. We're built to not give up. Here's a tough thing about our identity. We're made in a sinful world. Psalm 51, I was born into sin. I was born into sin. Nobody had to teach you that. You were born with that propensity because of what happened back in Genesis 3. We all have that sin nature in us. I was born into iniquity. We're born into the sinful reality called mankind. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And this is powerful. And we're gonna come back to why we need that, to have a, an awareness of that. We, not, we need not to be embarrassed to say, part of my identity is I am made in a sinful world and I am a sinner. We are, we all have that in common. 
come back, come back to that. But you were also made for redemption. You were chosen by God for salvation. At just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly so that we wouldn't have to live in the punishment and consequences of our sin. So we were made in a sinful world, but when we were made for redemption to not feel the effects of that sinful world anymore or live in that reality. We live in the identity of forgiven and free, not as judged and condemned because of our sin. And we were made for eternity. Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternities in our hearts. So when things don't feel right here, that's because we weren't designed for here. Like things aren't right here and we're going to experience more than here because we were made with an eternal perspective. And this is just scratching the surface of your gospel identity. If you have no idea who you are, those are 10 things that you can know about yourself now. Gives you a starting place to come back to. I am these things. This is our identity. We need to be reminding each other of these. And your purpose and your destiny on the planet are from these things, not for these things. We're not trying to win the approval of God, but because we have an identity in him, we are then free to go with the unique gift that we have. So if you think of a house, a house has a common identity. It's a house. And you look at a house, it's like, there's a house. What's a house do? It gives people a place to have refuge, safety, protection, so that they can be what they need to be to live the life that God has called them to do. You can just take it, it has this like collective identity as a house. But if you look a little bit closer, the house has different systems, doesn't it? So it's like the house has a foundation. If you get the foundation messed up, like your house isn't gonna be able to fulfill the purpose that it was designed to. The, the framework, the carpentry that provides the structure and the strength and the rooms that's built on the foundation. It has a unique purpose from the foundation. They're still a part of the greater common purpose, but they have a unique place in the design of the house. And then there's sheetrock, and then there's insulation, and then there's interior design, and then there's HVAC, and then there's gas lines and then there is plumbing very important purpose in your house is the plumbing system by the grace of God most of the time we're very unaware that our plumbing system is functioning but then when something goes wrong with it that's messy right so I want us to think about like all of these I am made, I am made. Like, so that's the house. We are this house providing this general purpose to bless the world. Within the structure of the house, you have a unique and distinct purpose and gifting to be a blessing to the people living in the house. A couple years ago, it was the night before Thanksgiving at like 10.30 at night and Holly and I were sitting on the couch and like all of a sudden you hear this. It's like. That was weird. Like, our house is haunted. What is that? We get up and walk around, try to trace the sound. Like, oh my gosh. Okay, so every toilet and sink on our bottom floor is making this same, like, chorus of. And it's like, so you Google, what is in the bottom floor of, of your house? And it's like, you got a problem with your main line. I was like, that sounds expensive. And of course the warranty doesn't cover it because it's outside of the house. So anyway. So 10.30 at night, this stuff never happens at like 7.30 in the morning when you can like make a normal phone call in 30 minutes to the person that can come to, 
to fix it. So we call it like the 24-hour emergency, the night before Thanksgiving. And he's like, I'll be there at 3 a.m. He's not there till 7 a.m. Stayed up all night waiting for him. He never came. I know. Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> and so then he's like, <laughs> you got two problems. I'm like, great. What's problem number one? Well, um, the problem is the, found, the soil under the foundation of your house is shifting. Remember I said, you know, Houston, welcome. I think Houston must be number one in soil shifting. And so your house is shifted and it crushed the, the main junction, the, the junction of the main line coming out of your house because it's made out of plastic, crushed it. Then when it crushes, the trees that have been growing there for however, when they planted oak trees in your spec home to take over your whole yard. Those roots have to go somewhere. So the roots find the moisture and then they snake themselves into the pipe and block it. So it's crushed and blocked. Two problems. So the guy does this emergency thing and he clears it out. He's got his little rooter thing with the saw blades. And it's like, there's like wood chips flying everywhere. I'm looking on his little camera, right? And it's like, because the roots were in there obstructing. Like, your plumbing basically has one job. Get nasty stuff out of your house, right? When it's blocked, there's a certain reality that you start experiencing that's not good for the purpose of the house that you're living in. So we had this two problems, blocking the flow of the things that weren't, weren't supposed to, to be there. Then two years later, we're sitting there again, gurgle. They replaced that junction box like three days later and like, not box, but whatever. Pipes coming out of the house, reinforce it, make it super strong. Got a great plumber if you want, need a number. So two years later, we're sitting there. Oh, this time we know what to do. Like we know what it is. And it was only like 9.30 at night this time. So we knew somebody was probably awake, gave us some immediate instructions on how to avoid total chaos in the bottom floor of our house. Comes out, sticks the camera in. So this time, it's not the junction box where the house, that's still fixed. Now, it's 20 feet that way, the same unstable soil has crushed the line way out there. Two problems, clogged and crushed. Right? Right now we're operating under the grace of clearing out the clog, waiting for, because now we've got to get the foundation fixed to make sure it doesn't get crushed. Anyway, welcome to our world. This is what I want us to see. I found this quote from Caroline Leaf, and she says that you grow into your God-ordained self. You grow into your God-ordained self by unblocking the perfect you. By unblocking the perfect you. What's the perfect you? Who God made you to be in his image? The perfect you is not the perfect person. It's just the perfect you. So what happens to us? Something starts blocking that flow of things that allows us to be us. And we need to get, we've got a couple problems. What's causing it and how do we fix it? So I want us to just kind of look real quickly at this. There's some threats to your gospel ID. And it's, and it's this. Number one, and these, if you're taking notes, just write down Genesis 3, 1 through 7. That's where this comes from. 
Well, let's go straight to number one there. So the first thing that threatens your gospel ID is lies and temptation. The enemy lies to you and makes you think that you can do things you shouldn't do, twist the words of God, and invites you into tempting realities that compromise your own identity. Jesus in John 14 says, he is the truth, so any other truth other than Jesus's truth is a big fat lie. And if we believe lies, act on lies, submit to lies, then we will not, then we're blocking our identity. And that's why it's so important to remember that we are born sinners into a sinful world because one of the lies that the enemy's gonna bring to your front door is like, you're just a sinner. Don't you remember the last time you screwed this up? You don't deserve this. And instead of going like, uh, what do I do? You go, yeah, I know. I am the chief of sinners like Paul, but my God is a rescuing God and I was made for redemption. So that's not a problem for me anymore. I get to speak truth to the lies. I get to speak truth to the temptation or those lies and those temptations take me out. We don't have to be afraid of who we are. We are who we are. We're imperfect because God is perfect. We don't have to be. Our hope is in him. Our trust is in him. So lies and temptations, failures and mistakes, guilt and shame from whatever sins we've committed threaten our identity. We're always striving for worth or meaning. Traumas and hurts. Traumas affect the neurology in our brain, and so bad things that, that happen to us can very biologically become obstacles for believing the real identity that I was made for. It's one of the biggest breakthroughs in um, counseling right now is understanding how the brain and the spirituality are working together to renew your mind, to believe the truth let the word of God be louder than any other hurts. Let who God says you are be true and let everything else be a lie. Traumas and hurts don't define you. Doubts and fears. Doubts and fears. One of the apostles' name was Doubting Thomas. God can handle your doubts. He's not afraid of those. Perfect love casts out fear. We don't have to be afraid. The Bible even tells us, hey, one of the things you should pray is God help my unbelief. I want to believe that, but there's a gap. Help me fill this gap. It's not judgment or condemnation, but it threatens our identity. And then the last thing I want to say is hiding. And I'll close with this. Fitting in, pretending, it's just hiding. God made you for his image he made you for relationship. He made this luscious garden for Adam and Eve. And when they sinned against him, they knew it. And instead of trusting in who he was, instead of trusting in who they were in him, they hid. Like God couldn't see him. And they removed themselves from their own identity. It's not God who's taking us out of who we were meant to be. It's probably us. As we close, I just want to ask you three questions. Number one, what do you need to believe about who God is to help you form your identity? What do you need to believe about who God is from the things that we talked about? Number two, 
What do you need to believe about who you are? And then number three, what's your biggest threat? What's your biggest threat to belonging in your true identity? That's the work that only you can do to land on who you are in Christ. I wanna close with this. You find your gospel identity when you know who God is and you know who you are. Because when you know who you are, you know where you belong. Because you're with God. So you're right where you need to be when you know who you are. You can know that today. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance Church Sermon Podcast. To support our work, you can like, share, subscribe, or you can donate at rin-church.org.